Glow Journal listeners know that vitamin C is one of my holy grail skincare ingredients. And my holy grail C serum is La Roche-Posay's pure vitamin C10 serum. Vitamin C is the first thing I reach for when I need to fade pigmentation, create a more uniform skin tone, and to give my skin a boost of radiance. And La Roche-Posay's pure vitamin C10 serum is powered by 10% pure vitamin C in its most effective form to target fine lines and wrinkles plus salicylic acid and neurosensine to gently exfoliate while reducing the risk of skin discomfort. Recently awarded Best Skincare Product in the 2019 Prix de Marie Claire Awards, you can revive your healthy summer glow and make it last year-round with La Roche-Posay's Pure Vitamin C10 Serum. Available in Chemist Warehouse, Priceline Pharmacy and on Adore Beauty. Welcome to the Glow Journal Podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the founder of Glasshouse Fragrances, Nicole Eccles. I I find the whole process of hosting this podcast quite surreal, and I'm always grateful to speak to all of my guests, but there's something I find particularly interesting about those who work in fragrance specifically. Scent is the only thing that triggers that olfactory response in people and fragrance is so inextricably linked to memory. So I find the process of fragrance development to be really exciting, but I also find those that work in scent to be truly very interesting people as their work and what they put out into the world really does go on to mean something important to a lot of people. Nicole Eccles does not take that responsibility lightly. Born in New York and eternally fascinated by the transformative powers of beauty and of fragrance, Nicole's early experiences in makeup artistry, cosmetic sales and in corporate have given her a really unique and very powerful understanding of what women want. Nicole moved to Sydney from New York in 2005, thinking she'd spend no more than four years in Australia. On arrival, she visited a David Jones fragrance counter looking to replace a scented candle that she had brought over from New York with her. Alarmed by the lack of options, Nicole set out to fill the gap and succeeded in bringing Glasshouse fragrances to market in only 12 months. Now, this time frame would be remarkable for anyone in business, but it's important to note that Nicole was also in an entirely new country. She mentions in this interview that, while learning about Australian culture and even locating retailers was a challenge, the change in scenery also made her fearless, which is exactly how Nicole came across to me in this interview. She's resolute, she's tenacious, and she's brave. Glasshouse fragrances have experienced growth in excess of 50% year on year since more or less the day they launched. And while Nicole really did create an entirely new category here in Australia – She actually credits a lot of that growth to competition, telling me that brands cannot exist without it. I caught up with Nicole during her most recent trip to Melbourne to discuss the difference between developing fragrances for candles in comparison to Glasshouse Fragrances' new collection of eau de parfums, the power of timing in business, and the responsibility 
that comes from knowing complete strangers associate your work with some of the most important moments in their lives. Prior to starting Glasshouse Fragrances, I understand that you studied international business at the State University of New York. Yes. And you also worked on the Saks Fifth Avenue beauty floor, but I want to rewind even further. Can you recall your very first memory of beauty? Well, I think um, for me, it's definitely those moth to butterfly moments. Yeah. So my mother would, who was a stay-at-home mother of four, mm-hmm. she was a nurse, but then stayed home because I'm one of four. And she would disappear into her room and emerge smelling and looking amazing to me and and to everyone. She had an effect. My father would change. Everyone would change as a result of her change. And the power in that was extraordinary. And there was always a scent associated with that as well. So I was very obsessed with that power, that transformation at a young age. I had coloring books and most people color their books. I just scanned for faces and I put eyeshadow on them and lipstick <laughs> on them. You were doing face charts I was doing early. I was doing face charts in coloring books at five and it was always something that I was really interested in. Do you think you were doing face charts because you had an interest in beauty or were you just drawn to I guess features of people or maybe both? Maybe it was a combination of both but I think it was certainly it was color and Mm. and makeup and I want to do that to that person. Yeah. God, that's and it was the boys too and the animals. It was out of control. <laughs> I just put makeup on everything. I love it. Love it. You mentioned that um, fragrance was a part of that memory of your mother. Do you remember your first memory of scent? Yes, I certainly do. So scent um, means so many things for so many reasons. Mm. And I've always seen it as a symbol of um, rebirth, renewal, if you mm-hmm. will. So Being from New York, where I'm from, summer is the scent of grass. Yeah. And spring is the scent of lilacs. And here in Sydney, or in Sydney, it's jasmine is the smell of summer. And so there's these signature scents to denote certain times and certain special things that are happening that always are about something new, something fresh, something wonderful, something you need to experience. So it's really, really powerful. And for that reason, I think I've always been very drawn to it and have an extraordinary, if I do say so myself, <laughs> olfactive memory. Yeah. And, and so, it, yeah, that's how I feel about it. And um, it's also incredibly emotional. It is. I completely agree. For me, I'm a larger woman and I can buy lots of things to show my personality, to show how I'm feeling. Fragrance is one of those major things. Mm -hmm. Shoes, handbags, fragrance, jewelry, it always fits. Yep. And I can be whoever I want. Oh, I love that. God, I could just wrap it up here and be like, what (laughs) two perfect answers. So you studied international business. That's pretty far removed from... See, we're just getting stuck into the coffee. You can tell we're in Melbourne. Your studies were pretty far removed from the world of beauty. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? So I didn't know. 
I knew that I needed to go to college, mm-hmm. as we call in the States. And so I just said, okay, this is something I need to do, and I'm not quite sure what. But I was really motivated by, and this is going to show my age, in 1988, there was a film called Working Girl. Yes, there with was. Sigourney Weaver <laughs> and Harrison Ford and mm-hmm. Melanie Griffith. And in that film, you saw a woman depict herself as someone very powerful running a business. And that was very interesting to me because at that time, those roles were exclusively for men. Mm -hmm. And it just made me think, not that I wanted to be a powerful woman, but that a woman could do that. Right. And so I said, I'll go to school for international business because hey, business, international, that will cover it. Yeah. And then I'll be able to figure that out as I go, which is exactly what I did. Yes, you did. Did you have beauty in the back of your mind at all, given that you clearly had an affinity for it at a very young age? I didn't per se. Uh I didn't think that um, I was practical. Yeah. And I thought that being in beauty would be an absolute dream, but what's the chances? Right. And so it wasn't something I necessarily set out to do. Like, I'm going to start a beauty company. Not Mm. at all. But, of course, if I had to paint a fantasy, Mm -hmm. that was one of the things. But it wasn't something I thought I'd end up doing. And here you are. (laughs) And here I am. So what led you to Chanel and Saks? I understand that you were a Chanel makeup artist at Saks Fifth Avenue. What led you there? So I, after I finished high school Mm -hmm. and uni, I took a job in an advertising agency as a coordinator. Ah. I was terrible. (laughs) I'm a big thinker. My attention to detail when it comes to written form is horrible. Right. So I was the worst assistant on the face of the planet and I was fired. And I said, I'm going to go do something I really love Mm -hmm. now. And I'm just going to go do what I love, which is beauty. And um, I originally, actually, before I went to Chanel, I was the counter manager for Macy's Herald Scare, as we call it in New York. And I was poached there to go to work for Chanel. Oh, how good being poached. So, huge upgrade. And it's so good for the ego (laughs) being poached. (laughs) So, such an upgrade. And um, I became the resident there. So that uh, at a a counter that big, at a beauty business Mm. that big, they have residents. And so I was a resident there and I loved, I loved every minute of it. Amazing. I mean, how could you not given how much you love beauty? You did eventually move to corporate and relocated to San Francisco to work in business and sales. Beauty and business might not seem inextricably linked to the outsider, but certainly in Australia and based on my experience, the beauty floor of a department store can be very political, to put it politely. Were there any lessons that you learnt from being at Saks Fifth Avenue that you found you applied to your corporate career? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Saks is probably the most political beauty floor I've ever seen. Really? It's um, one of the reasons is that those people that work on that floor are paid 100% commission. Right. So they are owning a piece of... It's savage. <laughs> and they are they are territorial mm. and they're fierce and they're protecting a piece of real estate. 
Yeah. And that might have changed nowadays, but back then that's how it was. So luckily I didn't own one of those pieces of real estate. I was the asset that those guys Mm. used to move the person away so that a new (laughs) customer could come to that floor or that space and Mm. I would take them to a separate area of the store to do the, the, the work. And so I learned how to be patient. Yes. How to juggle the mm-hmm. different advisors because I was servicing all of them. Yeah. Uh, and I learned, and then there was someone else too, which was the mm-hmm. beauty manager and they weren't selling directly. They were in charge of meeting goals of the department. Right. Which have a completely different agenda than those those girls. And I learned all of that, but also I learned how to work with my customers, how to listen. Uh-huh. And I knew that, Clienteling is a huge part of that business mm. because the tourists come in and blow out and they might buy a thing. But the core business at any of those doors is the clienteling. Yeah. And you want that customer to trust you and to come back to you for everything. Because in Saks, they sold all of the beauty, not just one brand. Mm. I focused on one brand, but so you learn, but they, the other uh, people that worked on the floor sold multiple brands. So you learn how to listen. Yeah. And I also learned what women want. Mm, good name for a movie. And that was very, very, that was the most valuable thing ever. Mm. And when I left there and went into corporate sales, I, I felt like I was already way ahead of the game because ah. I had to hustle, but I had to do it ethically, honestly. I had to understand what the needs were and I had to solve problems. Mm. And when you're in B2B sales, that's what you're doing. You're looking at their business, trying to solve problems. Mm. And beauty's the same. Yeah. Mm. It's a fun take on it. Vice versa, was there anything that you learned while you were studying business that you then applied to your career in beauty? I would say that probably more of the theory. So I sort of really had a practical education Mm -hmm. when it came to sales and beauty. And my education at um, New York University was more about um, the theory. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting, but practical education for me, I think, is what has been the most valuable. Yeah. Hmm. The year 2005 saw you relocate to Sydney, Australia. Why Australia? So it's the zaniest thing, and people are going to hear this. Oh, I love zany. Nicole has problems. (laughs) I had always wanted to live overseas, Mm -hmm. always. And I thought to myself, okay, you know what? I'm just going to do it now. Yeah. Before I get too old, I'm going to go and move. And I sort of looked at the entire globe, and I thought, where can I move? Mm-hmm. It needs to be English speaking because I don't really speak any other languages competently enough to practice yeah. and to work. And for me, there was two places that came up. And this just shows how I was narrow my thinking was. But in my mind, there were two places. And that was either London or Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> to just narrow it right down to two cities. But that's no different to how it works here when someone says, I think I'm going to move. I'm thinking either London or New York, the same every time. It's it's mm. so very simple. But anyway, I said, well, London's kind of similar to New York. So I'll move to Sydney. It was just <laughs> that. But I didn't <sighs> just move straight here. I came for a few months and um, 
And then I decided, oh, this place, it's beautiful. I love it the is. people. <laughs> I just love it here. This is going to be my next my next four or five years. That's <laughs> what I was thinking. <laughs> 15 oh, years later. Naivety. It's <laughs> a very good motivator. I understand that once you had kind of settled in Australia, you visited a David Jones store because you wanted to replace a candle that you'd brought over with you. And it was that experience that sort of led to Glass House. Can you talk me through it? So by all accounts, I was from one of the biggest beauty markets in the world. Yes. So when there was a new brand, when there was a new launch, Bergdorf will get a six-month exclusive, Saks gets it first. It didn't matter what I wanted to try or experience. I had access to it all. Mm. Any makeup brand, any beauty brand, any fragrance, body product, you name it. So when I moved here... I was spoiled mm-hmm. for choice, but when I moved here, I realized that it wasn't quite the same. And now I understand totally why it's a smaller market; it's far away. And so, I saw a huge gap in the market for a fragrance brand at that time. There was La Cetane and there was mm-hmm. Crabtree and Evelyn, and in the David Jones store, there was a lot of all mainstream big fragrance brands that had been, you know, just mm. mainstream. And I saw then a huge gap for a, or an opportunity rather, for an Australian brand to have a fragrance brand that could be quite niche and cool and be all over the world. And I said, that is what I want to do. And further, I thought, okay, personally, I wanted products that I couldn't buy here, scented candles. Yeah. Some perfumes. Those items are very heavy and expensive to ship from the Mm. U.S. I thought to myself, color is fine. I'll just get my makeup sent over. I'll pick it up when I'm there. But candles, Mm. perfume, body lotion, shower gel, all of those amazing products, they, I saw that they were not, uh, there was an opportunity here for those items. And that's what I thought. And that's sort of where the the word glass house fragrances came from. This, This idea of creating this beautiful lifestyle fragrance Mm -hmm. brand that sells lots of products that's where I started in my mind Mm -hmm. and then practically speaking I said well let's start with the candle yes because there isn't one here (laughs) and boom yeah boom indeed you have sort of just touched on this but and you couldn't really get a beautifully fragranced candle for you know that isn't going to you know second mortgage material at that time you have sort of touched on it but why do you think the the offering in Australia was so minimal at that time it's just that Australia is far away and Mm. Australia's manufacturing they don't have as much as other markets a lot of the brands that were making it here back then were sort of affordable beautiful products but they were being sent from the U.S. to a distributor in Australia who was mm. then wholesaling it to a retailer. By the time it got there, it was a $100 candle. Yeah. Now, that's not okay. You should be no. able to enjoy fragrance all the time because it's a huge stress reliever for one. Absolutely. It resets your mind, especially nowadays. Everything's so busy. Everyone's so rushing and switched on all the time. And so... 
it's just one of those. It's mental health. You just mm. need to have those things. So that's why they were so expensive. There were very few brands being brought over. And also, it was just a life cycle thing. It, Australia, and this was not just Australia. This was moving around the world. So okay. if we look at where there's home fragrance growth, other markets are experiencing that growth. Now, the U.S. was one of the first. Mm-hmm. So it just made sense coming from that market to me. Yeah. Serendipitous timing as well. The <laughs> it timing. was you that figured it out. Half Ooh. of business is identifying the timing yeah. and acting on it. Mm. Having worked in both business and beauty in Australia and the US, what would you say are the big differences between the way Australia approaches business and beauty as opposed to the US? I think there's a good degree of brand-led versus product-led Okay, that goes on here. And the reason that product-led works, and I think less so, it's mm-hmm. becoming less so, is that when you're in a market where a product is brand new and it doesn't have 15 competitors, you can talk about a product and yeah. you can cut through that way. But when you're in the U.S. where it's so full of competition and beautiful brands popping up all the time, you have to be brand-led. You have to talk about your brand and why your brand is different and what you stand for mm-hmm. as opposed to here's the new whatever scrub. Right. Mm. There's a lot of whatever scrubs. <laughs> So you've got this great idea. You've obviously got a background in business. You know beauty. What do you do next? How do you how do you start Glasshouse Fragrances? It was a very daunting process when I think about it. And mm-hmm. I look at it now and I we brought a brand that didn't exist to market in 12 months. Yep. It's just beyond so, for example, I thought I had like made a mistake when I was no. researching this. I'm like, okay, cool. So she moved in 2005, and then Glasshouse launched in 2000. Hang on, no, and it unbelievable. Was, it was how many SKUs? There were about 15 SKUs oh at God. that time. Now, it's extraordinary, but it starts with you need money, and it yeah. starts with investment. And so, I had a business plan mm-hmm. with that plan. We went to, I had someone at the time that was helping me. We went to a potential investor who's my mm-hmm. business part, the, the co-founder. Yeah. And um, work and I started the business back then. And uh, it starts with a business plan. It starts with acquiring the investment, setting it all up. It was very, very difficult because I had no idea how to make a candle. Right. Which I imagine would be a pretty... Useful skill when starting a fragrance brand. But, and anyone who's listening to this and makes candles will know. Yeah. It is not as easy as putting some fragrance oil and wax and turning it on. Our first candles were terrible. (laughs) They were the worst. If I tried to sell that product in the U.S., it would be, I'd be closing the doors tomorrow. Oh, my God. But here, because it delivered on fragrance, they smelled amazing. We got away with it. And we're <laughs> in the background God going, did. oh, my God, how do we fix this? How do we how do we make these better? They were smoky. They were, oh. And um, it was daunting, absolutely daunting. It was very, very interesting time. But we got through it. That you did. God, imagine if you had launched in the U.S. and then the oh, brand I would died d- after six months. How different would things be? Died after a month. You would get, you'd get no oh. reorders. Good Lord. Yeah. Nightmare. Crazy. Do you remember which scent you developed first? 
So if there were 15, there's mm-hmm. a few, there's a bunch that aren't in the range now, but the scents that still are in the range, Taha, which is vanilla caramel, yeah. which is one of our iconic, iconic friends, mm. scents. Um, there were Marseille, which is the gardenia, mm-hmm. uh, which is now renamed uh, Marseille Memoir. There were Montego Bay, which yeah. is now Montego Bay Rhythm. There were quite a few. And the way that I developed them was I held little focus groups in my Pottsport yeah. apartment. And I just brought my new friends around. And we'd sit around in circles just smelling things and going. Because I had 100 cents yeah. that I loved. And we had to narrow it down because we couldn't make them all. Mm. It's just This is just quite surreal because I'm just, as you're naming the fragrances, back when I was still studying, I was on the fashion floor at David Jones and the beauty floor was nearby and we would all sneak off when there were no customers <laughs> and just pick up the glasshouse candles and just be standing there just inhaling them. And here you are, crazy. <laughs> so you launched in 2006. We've touched on how crazy that is to get a brand off the ground in 12 months. It's absurd. If people have listened to other episodes of this podcast, they'll be scratching their heads. An intense year, I imagine. Yes. What were some of the biggest challenges? So the biggest challenge for me was I was in a new country. (laughs) I keep forgetting that part. I didn't know any of the retailers. Yep. To me... I didn't know the difference Good between God. Meyer and David Jones. Dare I say it? Oh. Now I'm very clear. But back Ooh. then, don't forget, living in Potts Point, yeah. the only doors I saw were the CBD Sydney, which yeah. both are beautiful doors. Mm. And I'm looking at the two doors going, well, they're the same. I didn't know any of the fashion brands. Yeah. So it was really difficult because I was the only one selling in this brand. Mm. So I had to find retailers Without any information. So I used to read the back of magazines to find out where the gifts are coming from or the different items that are being um, given to the editor for photos for the different features. I would read that. I would talk to cool girlfriends who lived in different cities, ask them where they shop. I just did that and I tried to create a very curated tight list of the best of the best. Mm. And that's where we went first because I was very clear about prestige brand position, wanting to make sure that we had the buy-in from the best retailers that we could find or that I could find. And that was difficult. Yeah. But we but we managed. And hmm. the other thing that was really interesting or the big learning for me was the um, – I was also learning about the culture. Yeah, of course. The vernacular. Mm-hmm. I couldn't spell anything. People would call me and they'd say, oh, this is Mary from, you know, Tawanga. What? I go, what are you saying? <laughs> I said, oh every time, God. can you spell that, please? Can you spell that, oh, You please? would just think you're being prank called all the time. <laughs> I had to keep writing it down <laughs> because now when someone says something to me, I speak perfect Australian. I know exactly what yeah. you mean. I could write it. Oh, you said uni before. And I'm like, oh, goodness <laughs> me. <laughs> so the vernacular, all that, it was very, and I think, though, in some respects, that really served me because I was fearless. Yeah, I'd, not, I'd bring anybody knock on their door because Americans are quite aggressive compared to Australians. <laughs> so I just went for it. I didn't care. Oh, I love it. Now I'm a little more, ooh, should I call them? It's so it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, learning an entirely different vernacular aside, what were the other big learnings from that time? I think that um, those were the two. Also, um, 
the whole thing was such a whirlwind. Yeah. And we were on a straight road to success. All the indications were there. Mm. It was wonderful. Yeah. So I was selling. I was taking reorders. I was making candles. I was down on the floor making sure that the candle makers were doing a good job. So literally going through the products at the end of the line, picking out the ones I didn't like. Mm. So I didn't have time to think about what I learned because the whole <laughs> thing was just whoosh. whoosh. Yeah. Oh. You have just sort of touched on this when you were visiting retailers and having to educate them on an entirely new product. I did want to talk more about that because I think when you found a business out of necessity, there's pros and cons. Pro being you've no competition. The con being you have to educate everyone on this entirely new category. What was the response like firstly from the retailers that you were trying to, you know, sell it to and then from consumers? So one of the benefits of working with the best shops is they already had a understanding that a scented candle could be beautiful and deliver scent. Right. And they also understood that the really beautiful products were way too mm. expensive. Mm-hmm. And so when I went to them with this brand and said, Glasshouse Fragrances, we make these beautiful candles, we make them here. So they're not going to cost $100. They're going to cost 30 Yeah. Which that's what they were when we first <laughs> launched. And so we, we really did get quick pickup. But from the consumer side, consumers had been trained to believe that scented candles didn't smell because they were buying products at home stores and do, I don't want to say dollar stores, but those sort of homey stores. Yeah, well, like, that's certainly what I think of with you know, discount in inverted commas candles. Correct. And so... And the fragrance is like one note. Correct. Yeah. that, But that's what their perception of mm. scented candles were. And so we had to prove to them that that wasn't going to be the case with us. Mm-hmm. So it was imperative that all of the retailers were burning these products in store because I knew they would do the job. Yeah. All they had to do was light it. So yep. the customer would come in. God, you can smell they it. They would smell it, it. And that was it. Mm. And whatever they burned, they'd sell. So initially they'd say, oh, I'm, you know, I have an overstock of Galan green tea. And, you know, how do I, what do I do about that? Well, just put it on. <laughs> yeah. And then that would sell. Yep. So that's how we did that. Mm. I mean, it, this is the thing. When a product's that good, it yeah, it all just kind of makes sense. Glasshouse experienced growth in excess of 50% year on year from pretty much the day you launched until now, which is absurd. What are the challenges that come with growing a business that quickly? Fast growth businesses need people. Uh huh. And there's always new roles, new people, and you're trying to steer the ship per se get alignment, get people together to make decisions to move the company forward. Mm. When you're growing that fast, you're constantly adding people. So that's a bit of a challenge because the more people you have, the more complicated it is to run a business without good process. And you're you're moving so fast, you're not having time to develop the processes Mm -hmm. that keep everything together and functioning really well. So that is probably the the challenge from for us. It was, God, everyone, we need this process. Process. You're constantly putting in process and people. 
Oh, just the thought of running a business of that size gives me like chills. <laughs> We've talked about how at that time it was it was just glass house. If you wanted a beautiful scented candle, it was glass house or nothing. That's obviously not the case now and this is one of the things that happens when you create a category. How did you cope both in business and personally as competitors started to emerge? So personally, I was fine because as a beauty obsessed junkie, perfection, everything needs to be perfect. I'm highly critical Uh of products. And so to make a product as well as we do takes experience. Yeah. It takes resource. It takes time. It takes access to great perfumers. Mm -hmm. We have never been in decline. Yeah. That's amazing. So it doesn't matter how many competitors go around. Our commitment is to making the best product, having the best perfume, transforming that moment for that person that uses our our product. It's to our customers. So sure, there's competition. I knew that was going to happen. You can't exist without it. It just isn't the way the world works. And the lucky thing for us was the category was growing as new customer as new brands were coming in mm-hmm. so there were more customers right so it's it wasn't all it wasn't diluting us it was bringing new customers into a category oh what a nice way of looking at that well it but that's yeah. the way it works i love that yeah there's there i sincerely believe there is room for everyone to succeed and do their thing and yeah you have explained why yeah <laughs> amazing Beneath the umbrella of the Sapphire Group, you also launched Circa Home. What led to that launch and what did you feel was still missing from the market that Glasshouse wasn't perhaps the best vessel to deliver? So as I was saying before, Glasshouse Fragrances is our lifestyle fragrance brand. That's why we've just launched finally, finally, the Eau de Parfum, the beautiful body wash and body lotion. It is for you. It's it's a it's it's. It's um, the brand that propels you, that makes you want to try new things, go places. It has an electric scent, mm-hmm. if you will. Circa Home is our home fragrance brand. Yeah. So that's for the home. It's intrinsic. It's about nesting. It's about it's about your family. It's about mm. f- coming down from your busy day. So they have different clear positions. Mm. And the customers are, or the consumers of those brands are different. Yeah, they are, aren't they? Yes. I can't put my finger on what it is, but there, there is a difference. So mm. it's not so much, it's a brand thing. Less yeah. than a pro- it, it is a product thing because, for example, Circa Home will never do Eau de Parfum and it will right. never play in that sort of beauty space, mm-hmm. whereas Glasshouse is the beauty brand. Mm. Yes, it is. At present, there are more Glasshouse fragrances than I can count. And I tried. I there's really, 20. There's 20. 20 core fragrances. Twenty. Okay, so this is the thing. This is where I got confused. 20 core, but yes. then. But we, so we, our rhythm yeah. is, and this is completely driven by our customers because like me, they're just complete cinetics and they want more, more, more. Yeah. So we always have our amazing limited fragrances that we mm. launch a couple of times a year. So usually there's always a summer fragrance and a winter fragrance. Yeah. We also have our Mother's Day program. Yeah. And then we have our Christmas collection. Ooh. So it's kind of those four key moments. 
We also have uh, our e-commerce business is really great and it's growing mm. like not so. But the website looks so good. Isn't it beautiful? Oh, I'm going to send everyone there because it's looking amazing. So we just launched that new website last week. It's so like clean and oh, I just love it. It's it was, very exciting. It's, it went, my team did an incredible job, so I cannot take credit. I have the best people. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's great. Yeah, it's amazing. When you are developing a new scent, be it part of, you know, core or limited edition, whatever it may be, are you doing that based on what the consumers are asking for or are you always kind of thinking of the next scent? It's a combination of both. So a lot of the the fragrances that we are selling or that are available on our e-commerce site are fragrances that are customers, they were either out at one time, mm. albeit in a limited edition or maybe briefly in core, and yeah. our customers love them and they want to continue to buy those mm-hmm. fragrances and we sell and we make sure we have those for, for those guys. And that's completely from them, what yeah. they want. When you talk about limited edition, we have a responsibility as leaders in perfume and fragrance to bring to Australia some of the world's best trends. Yeah. That is our responsibility. That is something I'm very passionate about. Mm-hmm. And I spend a lot of time overseas working with perfumers, trying to find trends and fragrances that are different, avant-garde, if you will. Yeah. That's our commitment. So that's where limited editions come into it. Also, we do listen to our customer. If there's a, a fragrance or something trending or a note or an idea, the best idea wins. We'll mm. do anything. Amazing. We, I, I mean, we need to talk about the personal fragrances because it's so exciting that they've launched. It's very, very exciting. Can you talk me through the difference between the way you approach developing a personal fragrance compared to a fragrance for the home? So there's a few differences. Number one, the the most important thing to understand is when you are developing a candle, you have to work around this flame. Yeah. And that level of heat does something to a a fragrance that your skin does not do. Thank God. (laughs) Yeah. So you have to understand the chemistry around fragrance. But if you're you're creating a fine fragrance, Mm -hmm. in a case of, for example, our eau de parfums, there are perfumers we work f- with for that. Yeah. If you are creating a pure home fragrance, there are perfumers you work with for that. Mm-hmm. And they're not the same people. Yeah. So the seven eau de parfums that we just launched, a lot of them have are, are available in a candle. So, for example, Kyoto, which is now called Kyoto and Bloom, is in a candle. Mm-hmm. And there's um, there's a few of them that, that follow that Florence, Forever Florence. But those fragrances in a candle started out as fine fragrances uh-huh so it's called trickle down there were fine fragrances that turned into that were interpreted into a candle fragrance mm. not the other way around so the thing about the seven fragrances we've launched is they all began their lives as fine fragrances that turned into a candle mm-hmm. there aren't any that went the other way and the reason for that is we knew that this was going to happen for a very long time. So we started speaking with some amazing perfumers, and there's seven different perfumers that worked on the collection that are some of the world's best, and they work on amazing big brands like Tom Ford, and I could go on. Those guys created these perfumes and 
some of them have turned into candles. Mm-hmm. Rendezvous is another one. There's a bunch of them. God, this is so interesting to me. I While we're on the, I guess, the art of developing scents, in, this is a very broad question, but in as little or as much detail as you wish, how does the process work of working out which notes work together, whether that's in a candle or personal fragrance if you're layering things, how does the process work? So it starts, so if we work with perfumers and perfume yeah. houses, and my role, and I have the two other amazing developers on my team, we're art directing fragrances. Yeah. So the chemistry around perfume, what things will work together. Because sometimes you might think things smell well together, and they might. But when you mix them together, one negates the other yeah. or completely changes or they blow up. It's a chemical thing. And so the perfumer understands that. Mm-hmm. So when we work with the perfumer, we talk about the art direction, yeah. what we're trying to create. We might focus on a note, for example, Midnight in Milan, which is extraordinary. That is a saffron-based fragrance because mm. I'm really interested in saffron, and I think it's a great, really interesting, slightly smoky note that I mm. love. So when we worked with the perfumer, we said, you know what, let's do something with saffron. Yeah, And, and that perfumer said, great let's work let's add some rose because that really works and then it just kind of starts from there and you look at about five or six or sometimes 25 different versions and you just narrow them down mm-hmm. hmm. trial and error really it is amazing from a brand perspective you've talked about how you have this responsibility to bring trends from around the world to australia are there any notes or any fragrances that are or, or a combination that are like a guaranteed sell? I, it's, it's a good question because when you look at big selling fragrances that just are performing all the world mm. over, you, so once in a while people just stumble upon a winner, Coco Mademoiselle from the 90s, yeah. like, please. There are some, depending on what country you're in. Yeah. There are certain profiles of fragrance that will work better than others. Mm-hmm. And we're aware of those. But there's no guarantees. Yeah. There never is in business, is there? So this seven we launched, it's really funny because we said, okay, let's guess which three are going to be the best. And let's just go right ahead and put it into a twist and spray. So there's mm-hmm. a 14 mil travel size. And then there's this twist and spray. And because the twist and spray product's quite expensive and the MOQs were high, the minimum order quantities for those yes. who don't <laughs> business, we said, okay, we have to select three. Okay, what should we guess are going to be the top selling? So we said, okay, we're going to guess that Kyoto and Bloom, Forever Florence, Midnight and Milan are going to be the best. Mm-hmm. So this these just launched last week. Yeah. There is a clear trend of those leading. Okay. So we I think we yeah. guessed it right. Yeah. That's the game. Like you never quite and know. And game it is. Yeah. It's, oh, that's a risky yeah, it's- one, but <laughs> <laughs> clearly it's paid off. Is there any longevity in fragrance trends again in inverted commas or do these things kind of change with the season i think that there's some fragrances that are eternal and they're timeless and they're for us um if you look at our range there's a fragrance called forever florence that is absolutely Mm. timeless it will it does not date it's a it's just the smell of your skin the smell of you 
But then things like Oud, for example. Yeah. When I go home and I visit my brother and everyone around New York, I was like, gosh, everyone reeks of Oud. And I love Oud. Yeah, so do I. But sometimes I don't want to smell that constantly. Yeah. So I think that's going to dip. Okay. Because something's going to come that's going to take that of the new smell. Mm. And then everyone's going to smell like that. Because it's a polarizing scent that people got used to. Yeah. Mm. But I love that. I love the idea of something different that you've never experienced and you're not so sure of it. And then suddenly it grows on you and grows on you till you love it. And then it's really distinctive. That's the best part of perfumery. Mm. You talked about how your earliest memories of scent are, you know, so like still so vivid now. Fragrance is such a personal thing and scent really does trigger that olfactory response in people. How does it feel as someone who creates fragrances knowing that there are people out there just wandering around who associate your glasshouse fragrances with some of the most important moments in their lives? It's a great honour and it's humbling. It's incredible to be part of that. Mm. To have played a role in that. I certainly believe that they are the that person is the one who harnessed that power mm. and gave that scent that power, of course, but it's really nice to be a part of that. And I get the most incredible emails and touching stories from people. I love it. I just absolutely love it. Night before Christmas, our our fragrance for Christmas, that's just it is the scent of Christmas. It is. I can vouch for that. It was in my Christmas <laughs> gift guide. <laughs> yeah, I just I just think it's a crazy thing knowing that there are, you know, something you've created can mean that much to someone. It's a mm, very powerful. The link between scent and memory has a lot to do with this idea of signature scents. And I can guarantee that just about anyone listening to this has smelled a glasshouse fragrance before. If they don't have it in their house, they've definitely walked past a Peter Alexander and smelt Taha because it's just... I mean, how can you not? I cannot smell that candle now without going like, I think I need to buy some new pyjamas. Given that we've talked about your first memory of scent, are there any other glasshouse fragrances that trigger memories for you or make you want to go and buy pyjamas? Well, it's funny because Taha, this is a very funny story. It's now called a Taha Affair was one of the first fragrances we were going to discontinue. What? The reason for that is we were in all, at the time, these white shops and everything was white and gorgeous and Mm -hmm. clean, and Taha was caramel color. Yeah. So the retailers didn't like it because they couldn't merchandise it. And then Scotty, who's the buyer at PA, Scott Fryer, who I love, and um, he said, well, we love this fragrance, and we're going to put it on the counter, and we're going to burn it. And that business was transformed overnight and Mm. then now it's number one it's yeah and has been such an icon a long time it's such an icon but are there any other fragrances of yours that are that like if i smell that it's peter alexander do you have that with any of your other scents so there is a scent that we discontinued not too long ago called kakadu yes and for me that is the scent of the glasshouse fragrances beginning because Kakadu was the scent that I loved the most and the one that I used. Yeah. So when I smell that, I think, oh, my gosh, it's 2006, Mm -hmm. and I'm hustling and staying up till 4 in the morning doing retailer lists because that's what was going. Mm -hmm. 
So it's very interesting. Oh, I just... Mm. Something else, we've obviously talked about limited edition. We've talked about the core fragrances. I would love to talk to you about the art of collaboration because you have collaborated with brands like Peter Alexander, Tiger Lily, with artists like Gemma O'Brien. How does the collaborative process work and how does it differ from your usual product development process? So I am a great admirer of creativity. Mm-hmm and people who have ideas and do things a little bit differently. And so when we are designing product, it, it is part of the NPD process because we're thinking about what should we do, where should we focus, mm-hmm. and we look at the scent we're developing and then we think about, well, is there a form that really expresses that? Yeah. And that's what happened with Gemma is that, I just absolutely loved her work. The fragrance, Melbourne Muse, it just made sense. Mm-hmm. And the rest is history. I think with Peter Alexander, that is much more collaborative with Peter himself because yeah. they have these luscious gourmand scents. If you look mm-hmm. at their collection, it's very juicy. You want to eat it. It's, it's yeah. edible. And that is what they do, and they do that really well. We work together on that. So that's a lot of fun mm-hmm. because gourmand fragrances are just delicious and so indulgent. Yeah. And they love that. So you get to really do that. Whereas with our core glasshouse fragrances, they're not quite so edible. Yeah. Taha is and Montego Bay, there's a few, but the fine fragrances, not so much. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the key to a successful collaboration? Like-minded brands and Mm like-minded creativity. They need to make sense. There needs to be a base there that is authentic Mm. and goes with both of you. I love that word, authenticity. I love it. It has been 14 years since you launched Glasshouse, which is crazy to say, and even longer since you started working in beauty at Saks Fifth Avenue. Over that time, what have been the biggest changes that you have seen within the beauty industry? So the big change is just the way people are shopping. Mm -hmm. So it was all about department store beauty forever. And then suddenly everything started to change. Mm. And with that is your ability to touch, feel, trial, smell I mean, Mecca is one of the most important retailers in Australia mm. because they facilitate that access to brands that mm. are new and different. And they make it tactile. And, and tactile. And so you can have an experience. So I think that's been a very, a very interesting change. And the other thing is when that happens, the entry barriers are lower. Mm. So more brands come in and you have more access to things. Yeah. So that's been great for people particularly because you get a lot of, there's a lot of choice. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's been a a really good thing in some ways. And in other ways, it's been very challenging for big retailers to adjust to that. Mm -hmm. So we've been very fortunate because we primarily are wholesalers. We do have our retail um, wing, which is our e-commerce site. And we have a pop-up in Macquarie Shopping Center in Sydney. But um, yeah, we, we work very closely with department stores, with our retailers to make sure that we're driving newness and excitement mm-hmm. to give that customer a reason to come back into their store to experience something new. Mm. 
And what would you say are the big changes we can potentially expect to see from beauty over the next couple of years? I think that this individuality about fragrance, and I'll speak for just fragrance Mm because that's my area, is about this whole niche fragrance experience and wanting to have this distinctive scent. And Mm. in our business particularly, what makes us unique against our competitors is our customers are scent addicts. They love scent and lots of it. So they typically don't have one thing. They'll have five, six, seven, eight Mm-hmm. And they rotate them and change them like clothes or makeup or it's all the Guilty same thing. Guilty as charged. <laughs> I can <laughs> confirm all of this is very much true. That's our customers. So you're, you're, mm. you're the sweet spot for us. And so just continuing to give them that is important. But we've always kind of done that. So mm. I hope that answers the question. It does. It does. <laughs> More of what you're doing. So you were ahead of the curve. So that's that's the way it's going to go. My final question, what is next for Glasshouse Fragrances? Well, we set out to be this lifestyle lifestyle fragrance brand, as I talked about, with our amazing eau de parfums that's taken 14 years to bring to the business. Worth the wait. Worth the wait. The truth is we've been working on this for many years, but actually bringing the, the actual products to market, it's been two years of hardcore development of just the SKUs Mm -hmm. and we just launched exactly 100 SKUs six new categories six categories new categories of product that is a ton of product development Mm. with that now we can start to think about expansion globally because it was very important to me that I complete what we set out to do before we start to build our business in other markets because you go with how you end to finish you intend to finish so now that we've done that we want to be the first australian brand to be be a fragrance brand across the globe that's what we want to do that was nicole eccles founder of glasshouse fragrances which you can find on instagram at glasshouse fragrances To read my interview with Nicole, you can visit glowjournal.com. And for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at gemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast. And thank you for joining me.